Church, as we continue to worship today, I'm going to encourage you to take your copy of God's Word and turn to the final book of the Bible, turn to the very back of the Bible, the book of Revelation, as we start a series entitled Dear Church, The Seven Churches of Revelation. The book of Revelation is daunting to many, if not the majority of Christians. I remember the first time I read the book of Revelation, at least in my memory, was in my home. I was elementary school age. For whatever reason, I turned to the very last book, and I decided I was going to read the book of Revelation. I vividly remember the images that came before me, the strange world that I was introduced to just through the reading of the Revelation. It's a strange world of angels and demons and lambs and lions and horses and dragons. Oh my. It's a, a seals are broken in uh, the book of Revelation. Trumpets are blown and seven bowls are poured out. There are ten horned monsters coming out of the sea and thunder and lightning and hell and fire, blood and smoke is all there. And for that and many more reasons, many Christians would put this to the side, the book of Revelation, feeling that it's daunting, feeling at times it's incomprehensible. And we miss the blessing that is contained in the very outset of the book of Revelation, a blessing that comes to all who listen, who hear, and heed the word. So let's do that this morning as we start our study in the book of Revelation, the first three chapters, starting in verse 1 of Revelation 1. Revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy And blessed are those who hear. So so there's a blessing, one of the first of seven blessings that are going to be given throughout the book of Revelation is right here. What we're doing, just the reading of this out loud and the hearing of this, but not only just the hearing, and to who and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth, to him who loves us, and has freed us from our sins by the blood, and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold. He's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will well on account of him. Even so, amen. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Our focus is not the entirety of the 22 books, uh, 22 chapters of the book of Revelation. Our focus will be centered specifically on chapters 2 and chapter 3. But for our sake, this morning, it's good to get our bearings. And we can get our bearings by looking just at the opening words here. Notice the first two words of Revelation 1.1, the revelation. Apocalypsis is the word there in the Greek language, which just means an unveiling. Revelation. Revelation of who? It's the revelation of Jesus. So what we need to always keep at the forefront that the book of Revelation is, is a bright light that is shining upon Jesus who takes center stage. That the revelation is the unveiling of, of Jesus. And Jesus is before us in chapter 1. And we want to see his grandeur. We want to see 
His glory here. This story is His story that was given to the church, to a specific apostle. He's introduced to us in verse 4. It's the last living apostle at the writing of this. His name is John. The majority of the other apostles have been martyred by this time. He is on the Isle of Patmos. He's been exiled there for the preaching of the gospel. We get that introduction, but we get a fuller introduction in verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Revelation is given to John, who is to give it to seven churches. These seven churches you see on the map here are on the western coast of Asia Minor then. Now this is modern Turkey. You see where John, for the persecution that he has received from the emperor of that day, he's been exiled to this small island called Patmos. And so if you were to be a messenger leaving Patmos to go to these seven churches that are described, you would go in this order here. You would start in Ephesus and then go to Smyrna. It's a kind of a crooked horseshoe shape that we have right here. The seven reference is not accidental. We're going to see it 55 times in the book of Revelation. we got seven churches, but that number seven isn't because there are only seven churches in Asia Minor. There are more than seven churches, no doubt. But these seven churches are seven churches that through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that this vision is to be given to. But there's also a sense that there's a completion, a perfection that is given with the number seven. With 55 references in the book of Revelation, you're going, to find, you're going to find seven of a lot of things. There's seven spirits and seven seals and seven horns and seven eyes and seven angels, seven trumpets and seven plagues and seven golden bowls and seven heels, seven kings and seven final visions. So there's a sense in which the, the, this revelation is for these Christians at this moment in time, but there's also a universality as we overhear the word that was given to these Christians at this time, there's a word for us as Christians throughout all the ages. And, and this revelation is a revelation that speaks to us and not just them there. And their there was not a good there. Where they were was a difficult place. It was a place of immense and intense persecution. The emperor, whose name Domitian at this time ruled from AD 81 to AD 96. He's not the first Roman emperor who is going to be a persecutor of Christians. You hear the stories of the infamous Nero who lived 25 years before this emperor. But his, his persecution of Christians was, was severe, but it was sporadic. So it was this emperor whose persecution is severe and it's systematic. So the seven churches that are receiving this revelation, all of those people receiving it would have known Christians who had lost their livelihood because of the gospel. And they would have all known family members and friends who had lost their lives. 
And John, the apostle, who's receiving this revelation, who through the power of the Spirit of God is going to write this down, he himself is not writing as some academic ivory tower far removed from the travails of what's going on. No, he's in the midst of it. He is a recipient of persecution. He is exiled here in this insignificant island, far away, small. This is going to shut him up. But what the emperor didn't know is you can, you can put John wherever you want to, but you can't put him in a place that can shut off the Spirit of God from him and to him. And so here in this insignificant place, exiled, he receives this glorious vision that is to be an encouragement to the Christians who are going through intense persecution. What did they need the most? It's not what, it's who. And the who is Jesus. How he received the who is through this glorious vision that he received starting in verse 12. Read with me. Then I turned, I being John, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of these lampstands, one like a son of man. Underline that, circle that. It's very important that you know who this is. He's clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. This is the revelation of the exalted Jesus. The one who is like the Son of Man is a reference to the Gospels. This is Jesus' title that he uses for himself more than any other title on his own lips in the Gospels, the Son of Man. He didn't invent that phrase. It's a phrase that comes from Daniel, specifically Daniel chapter 7. And in that prophecy, there was this long-expected Son of Man who is going to come, who is going to be a human, but he's also going to be more than human. There's going to be humanity and divinity that is combined together, and the prophet was looking forward. And he wasn't able to see with his own eyes face-to-face what 2,000 years ago the disciples and others got to see and what John gets to see in the exalted vision of Jesus that stands before him, one who is like the Son of Man. And where is he standing? He's standing in the midst of seven golden lampstands. What in the world? What, what, what does this mean? What are the seven golden lampstands? Well, we have, a, we have a, a rubric. We have a context that gives us, in verse 20, we know exactly what the seven golden lampstands are because John tells us, guess what they were? They're the seven churches. So you've got Jesus, the one who's like the Son of Man that is in the midst of these churches. It, it is a glorious reminder that, that, that they would have felt persecuted and isolated and forgotten about There in the midst of the persecution, they would have felt like the emperor there, he was reigning in a way that was insurmountable. And what John is saying is, is I I see Jesus. And you know where I see him? I see him in your midst. I see him in the midst of those that are hurting. I see him in the midst of those who've lost loved ones and lost their lives. He is walking with you. He's not forgotten you. That's where he is. He's with the seven golden lampstands. It's an image, a metaphor that that describes the purpose of the church. The purpose of the church is to shine 
The purpose of the church is to be light on this earth. The good deeds that a church does, the good word, the gospel that a church shares is not to exalt the church. It's not to make a name for the church. It is to shine so that a dark world would be able to see the source of the good deeds, the source of the message. So the role of the church is to put a spotlight, not on the church, but to put a spotlight on the source of the light. So, so a church's light is not generative from inside of it. The, sources, uh, the source of the light is, is, is a borrowed light, like, like the moon's light is borrowed. You know this. Moonlight is, is the sunlight that shines on the moon and it bounces off and the illumination of the moon is, is the recipient of the, the rays of the sun. And so a church shines as the rays of the S-O-N shine upon us and that we show the glory of who Jesus is. So there's a lot of things that our church does, but ultimately why we do these things is so that people can see Jesus more clearly. That people here in the Birmingham metro area and in our state and in our nation and in our world could see Jesus and see him in his glory and his splendor and ultimately give their hearts and affection to him because he's only the one who is worthy of our affection. He's only the one who is worthy of our praise. And so these seven golden lampstands are to shine brightly to show people who Jesus is. There's seven particulars, descriptors of the vision of the one who is like the Son of Man. Seven, again, is not accidental. We're going to have descriptions of the hair and the eyes and the feet and the voice and the right hand. We're going to have a description of of the very mouth and the, the very face and countenance of Jesus here. The seven, again, remind us that this is a portrait of completeness. This is a portrait of perfection. Jesus is perfect. Let's look at each of these descriptors more closely. Notice with me his absolute purity. Do you see that? The hairs of his head were white. They were white like wool, like snow. That that is a description of Daniel chapter 7 verse 9. A lot of the language of John, especially this vision here, is going to be him utilizing the the words of the prophet here. And so we have have this description of the absolute purity of the one in Daniel chapter 7 verse 9. is the ancient of days here, but he's white as snow. This This is an indication that Jesus is completely pure. Hey, you are not, I am not. We do, we do not live in a pure world. Dude, I don't have to tell you that. You know that. You feel that. The air that we breathe, you don't have to go fishing for this and looking for this. But there, there is impurity around us and there's impurity within us. And in contrast to the impurity that, that we breathe and the impurity that we swim in, as citizens of this earth, there is one who is radiant in his whiteness, radiant in his clarity, in his purity. He is white as snow. That image there is an image of of crystal clarity, of absolute purity here. He's absolute pure. Also, he has a penetrating vision. His eyes were like a flame of fire. 
That language again comes from Daniel chapter 10, verse 6. Our, our world conceals. You don't have to go looking for stories of cover-ups. You don't have to go looking for people sweeping things under the rug, thinking it'll never come out. No one will ever know. What we're reminded of in this text here is that the exalted Jesus sees all and he knows all. There, there is nothing hidden from the gaze of our Savior. He has a penetrating vision, but he also has a perfect character. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. Again, this is language that goes back to Daniel, especially Daniel chapter 2. There's a vision of a statue of King Nebuchadnezzar, and it's built, his feet were built with clay and iron. And the clay was a reminder of the clay feet of that human, that human ruler who was imperfect in so many ways here. But in contrast, we have, we have the burnished bronze of the feet of our Savior. So, so he's perfect in his character. He is perfect. There, there, he has no clay feet. He doesn't stumble. He's sturdy. I don't know if there's ever been a time in the history of the church where the clay feet of Christians, specifically pastors and ministry leaders, are more known than, than right now. A, a week does not go by where there's not another revelation of the imperfection, the impurity of an under-shepherd, his clay feet. And there are podcasts that you can listen to, and the revelations of famous, but then also local. And, and this is as old as the Christian church. But in our day, it is broadcast in a way that is wholly unique. And so many Christians this day are, are, are disquieted and disillusioned. What does it mean that, that this under-shepherd, this human pastor had hidden so much, and his feet have, are, are so clay and so imperfect, and, and so many of these revelations have, have led to, rightfully so, uh, these pastors not pastoring any longer, and, and it's broken the heart and disillusioned so many Christians to see the impurity and imperfection of, of human shepherds. And this vision that John receives is a reminder to all of us that your hope and your faith does not rest on the clay feet of any human minister, pastor, author, leader. It is a good reminder to us that the failure followers of Jesus Christ doesn't tarnish the perfect character of Jesus Christ. Is it a stumbling block to the witness of the church? You better believe it. it is, is it example of example of blatant hypocrisy? You better believe it. Is it a reminder to us that Scripture tells us that teachers will be judged? Judged even more severely, James, that, that we as pastors, myself first and foremost, 
They're called to live above reproach, no doubt. But this text, it reminds us that our hope doesn't rest in the clay feet of human leaders. I've had people before who were baptized or married by someone who years later are not in the ministry any longer because their clay feet were revealed. And it's disillusioned them in so many ways. And I've had someone ask me uh, years ago, do, do I need to be baptized again? Because the person who baptized me is a person who, who I, I, I am, uh, I was doing these things in the midst of that. And again, I'm just reminded that this passage reminds us that there is a perfect character of the great shepherd that we place our hope in, whose feet sturdy, burnished bronzed. His perfect character, his resounding authority, his voice was like the roar of many waters. This is not Daniel language, it's Ezekiel language here, Ezekiel 124. It's the voice of God rising up over the voices of all that is around us in our culture. So many people vie for your attention. There's so many think pieces and so many authorities and experts you can find them on social media. You can find them on endless 24-7 cable news. And they, they all have so much of a voice that is carrying forward. But the only voice that demands our absolute affection and absolute adoration is the one who has the first word and has the last word. It's a voice that rises above the voices that clatter for your attention. His resounding authority. His perfect character, his penetrating vision, his absolute purity, his intimate concern. In his right hand, he held the seven stars. Again, what, what, what are the seven stars? What is he talking about here? Again, if you go to verse 20, we see the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. I don't exactly understand what this passage means. But it does seem as if there's a picture of the intimate concern that Jesus has for those Christians in these seven churches, and he is utilizing angelic messengers to comfort, console, to guide those Christians in the midst of persecution. Aren't you glad to know, as much as you love this church, as much as you prize the memories of this church, as much as you pray for the purity of this church and the mission of this church and the vision of this church, as much as you've seen God move in the midst of this church, your affection for this church pales in comparison to the perfect bridegroom who holds up this church, who is intimately concerned with this church, who has died for this church. This is a beautiful picture of his intimate concern for his bride. We also see his mighty words. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. A sharp two-edged sword. It's just beautiful reminder that the word of God that goes forth each and every time that we open up his word is a, it is a word that offers salvation and it offers judgment. It offers conviction and it offers comfort. It, it offers each and every day words that sing to us and sting. And you know this about the Word of God. The Word of God, it, it not only encourages you, but it exhorts you to do, to heed the words, not just hear the words here, His mighty words. 
And finally, his beautiful countenance. We, we end with a close-up, zoom shot of the face of the Son of God who is radiant in his splendor. His face was like the sun shining in full strength. Many people have gone back to the movies. Many people have gone to see the latest uh, Top Gun movie. And you're sitting there and you're watching the movie and, and you've got 30 minutes of previews. You've got 30 minutes of coming attractions that are before you. And what we have here in chapter 1 is we've got a preview of coming attractions. We know where this story is headed in Revelation 21 and Revelation 22. We're headed to the new heaven and the new earth. And you know what's not there? Impurity is not there. You know what's not there? Compromise is not there. You know what also is retired in the new heaven and the new earth? The S-U-N is retired. The sun is no longer needed. The sun is no longer needed because the S-O-N is shining and all of his radiance and the light that we need for the eternity that is before us is contained in the very person and splendor of Jesus. And this is the, the vision that John has as he gazes and the beauty of Jesus, and the radiance of Jesus. And guess what? If you are a follower of Jesus, this vision is a preview of coming attractions. One day you will not sit in a pew hearing John's words, but in the eternity to come, you will be on your knees beholding the very Word of God. And you know, Words cannot fully describe what is here before us. I think we're going to be in that new heaven and that new earth, and, and we're going to be able to see him face to face, and we're going to say, well, John, was, he was getting at it, but all of John's words could not fully describe the vision of what you will see, not with a veil, but what you will see face to face. That's, that's what's before us. And here on earth, we, we have those kinds of experiences. We have those times where, where your words just cannot fully capture what you're trying to describe. Just a few years ago, we took our boys out west and we went to the Grand Canyon and Sedona and we came back and family members and friends were like, what, what stands out to you? What do you like the most? And we tried to describe to them being on the rim of the canyon, going on this trail, and the sun was setting, and being able to look out and to, to see the cascading of all the colors as the sun was setting and the beautiful horizon that was before us. And we're trying to use words to describe that. And guess what? Words are just insufficient to do it. And we have to say, well, you just needed to be there. You got this thunderstorm that comes through, pop-up storm here in Alabama in May and June and July, and the, the storm dies down. You see the heat coming off the pavement, and you look up, and you see this beautiful promise of the rainbow. And you've got words. When you've got orange and red and yellow and streaks of color, I mean, you've got words but what takes your breath away about it is that words are insufficient. You have to say something like, well, you just needed to see it with your own eyes. And this is what John is saying to us. As he beholds Jesus in all of his splendor, he's inviting you, he's inviting you to one day behold him 
in all of the fullness and radiance that John is able to see face to face and that you will be able to see if you but turn to him and trust him, then one day you will be with him. My question to you is, do you trust him? My question to you is, have you turned to him by faith? My question to you is, are you sure that on the day of your death, that the next, the next countenance that you will see will be the countenance of your Savior that stands before you, that is previewed in this beautiful picture? But until then, for any and every Christian, we have a calling in this very passage. It's a calling to trust him, but it's a calling to obey him. In verse 19, John hears, Write, therefore, the things you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. And until, until we're in heaven and see him, the word for us as we behold him in his splendor in the word is to, is to obey his words. To not just hear the words, but to heed the words. As Jesus is standing with the golden lampstands, his intimacy and love for the church is before them. And so it's in that moment that we're reminded that Jesus is with any and every Christian that is here. He is with this church. But the question is, will, will we trust him and follow him? Years ago, we lived about an hour away from Starfield, Mississippi. I, ad nauseum, tell you stories about Mississippi State, growing up as a Mississippi State fan, not going there. My father being a graduate, my grandfather playing football there. So living an hour away from uh, Davis Wade Stadium meant that many Saturdays when the boys were really young, we spent with 61,000 Mississippi State fans watching Alabama beat us by 185 points. And, and so... <laughs> So there we were, and we would go to the home games. My father-in-law had tickets, and so most Saturdays, that's where we were. And one of the things about going to an Auburn game, going to an Alabama game, it's more pronounced for Auburn fans and Alabama fans because your stadiums are bigger than uh, the stadium there in Starfield, Mississippi. But it doesn't matter. You get the point. At the end of the game, leaving, especially with young children, leaving where you're sitting and being in the throne of hundreds, or not hundreds, but, but thousands upon thousands, tens of thousands of fans, and getting to your vehicle is one of the more difficult things that you have to do as a parent. So I remember vividly, especially when our boys were young, we would uh, have one by the hand and another by the hand, and Danielle or I would have the other one by the hand, and we would say to them, you hold my hand, and we would make our way paving through all of the crowd, getting out of the stadium and down where we parked to the vehicle. But it would not fail that one of our kids would want to do what? He would want to do it alone. He would want to not hold our hands. And we'd say, hey, you're not big enough to see above the crowd. You're not big enough to see where you're going. So you've got to hold on to our hands. And so to each of us that are children of the Most High God, we behold the grandeur and the glory of Jesus. And he holds out his hand to all of us. And he says, trust me, but also follow me. And there's some of us in this very sanctuary this morning that hear these words 
But if you're to be honest, you're not holding on to his hand. So today, he holds his hand to you. And he says, come, take my hand. I will never fail you. I will never lead you astray. Let us pray.